Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Deo. Deo. Daylight, come and me one go home. I can sing that for the rest of the day. We watch Beetlejuice. The juice is loose. Oh my God, I fucking love this movie this forever and always. movie was so fun. Yeah. Well, you because you hadn't seen it in forever. I hadn't seen it since I was a little kid. Right. And it was one of those like, I've seen forever then, I've seen very recently, and it holds up all the way. I it think. really does hold up. Yeah. My God, the music is amazing. It's so good. Every, don't, don't, yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to sing it. <laughs> uh, should we listen to the trailer? Let's do that. From the director of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Adam and Barbara are ghosts. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? Their house is being haunted by the living. Maybe the house could use a little remodeling. And they can't scare them into leaving. They're dead. It's a little late to be neurotic. So they're calling on Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Who's no ordinary ghost. Yeah, you don't want his help. Can you be scary? What do you think of this? Now, the party's over. You want somebody out of the house? I want to get somebody out of your house. <laughs> but the fun has just begun. It's showtime. Michael Keaton is Beetlejuice. I'm the ghost with most pain. Oh my god, watching that again just got me excited all over again, man. Fucking it's, Danny Elfman's score. <sighs> yeah, Michael Keaton, it, I mean, to say he's delightful in every scene is like the biggest understatement in the world. Oh yeah, I had a serious child crush on him. Uh -huh. So Tim Burton originally wanted Sammy Davis Jr. for the star of Beetlejuice. Well, let's take it back even further. Okay. So the original script was a horror movie, and it featured Beetlejuice as a winged reptilian demon who transformed into a small Middle Eastern man. <laughs> a small Middle Eastern That's man? That's right. It's too specific. But anyway, his goal, Beetlejuice's goal was to kill the Dietzes, and the original script included sequences where he mauled Kathy Dietz while in the form of a rabid squirrel and tried to fucking rape Lydia. Whoa. All over the place. So then subsequent re rewrites turned the film into a comedy and they like, you know, toned down Beetlejuice's character so he was less of a fucking demon and more of like a wise cracking ghost. Yeah. And then, yeah, because Tim Burton was such a big fan of Sammy Davis Jr. growing up, he was like, perfect. Uh, you know, uh -huh. he's a wise cracker. He got <laughs> yeah, that like yeah. crooner vibe to him. But of course, the studio execs didn't like that at all. Well... They wound up with the right choice. They most certainly did. I mean, he walks this weird line of being a pervert mm -hmm. that you love. Right. Like, like, how how did all, he do that? Yeah, he's being a perv, but he never actually goes for it. And he's also like a pathetic motherfucker. Yeah, this is so no silly. Eddie Murphy right. 90s it's, it's movie. It's not dehumanizing. It's just, it's a little <laughs> bit like, this guy's a, he's a clown. He's got to go to the inferno room with all the girls, girls, girls. Yeah, yeah. I also am yeah. just amazed that this movie's called Beetlejuice, and Beetlejuice doesn't show up until halfway through the movie. Oh, yeah. He was, 45 I think he, minutes he in. He filmed for like 
two weeks or something. That makes like, sense. Not even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The studio originally wanted to call the movie House Ghosts, but <laughs> you know Tim Burton thought that was so dumb. Then as a joke, he was saying, "Well, why don't we just call it Scared Sheetless?" And then he was horrified when the studio was like, "Hmm, let's think it over." Oh God! <laughs> he was like, "No." I, I'm always fascinated by like what could have been. So mm-hmm. you think of like some some of the casting decisions. Like Angelica Houston was supposed to originally be the Catherine, the Catherine O'Hara, O'Hara character, character which I think would have been odd because it's like she is known for Morticia. Or mm-hmm. when when did when did the Adams Family movies come out? Let me look up. Because I, you know, of course, I'm assuming I'm like, you know, Adam's family that she'd been in for a long time, but I don't even know if she was. Yeah, 1991. Okay, was the so Adams the, family. so yeah, the but even still, like, you know, I think of Angelica Houston, she fits with a sort of Morticia Adams yeah. vibe, whereas Catherine O'Hara, you know, she's a second city, I think, right? Like she's oh, in she bro- came in from history. yeah, she literally was on SCTV, which was the second city rival to SNL in the 70s, and she came up with Rick Moranis and John Candy and all those guys, and is one of the classic classic sketch comedians and has been in all those Christopher Guest movies, Mm -hmm. not to mention Home Alone. Right, right, right. (laughs) But she's a genius. You know, they're always fucking rebooting movies and they haven't rebooted Beetlejuice, (laughs) whether it's a total reboot or if it's a sequel. Now, there were plans for a sequel, Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. Hawaiian? That's right. This was still like back in the day. This was pre-Batman. So like Michael Keaton, Winona Ryder, they'd already signed on to, you know, oh. reprise their roles. But then Tim Burton lost interest and then went on to make Batman and Batman Returns. So, so he lost interest, really. He fucking I'm lost shocked. interest. And, yeah, I know. <laughs> and then even as late as 2015, Warner Brothers, like they were still trying to get some kind of sequel concept going. It's- and I would not be upset about it. If, if it was Michael Keaton. Like yeah. I think Michael Keaton has got to be Beetlejuice. So the Maitlands are a couple that, they die, right? Yes. They're they sort of like, what happens after you die? They're in this purgatory, you might call yeah. it. Now, what is purgatory? Catholics believe in heaven, hell, and something called purgatory, which isn't like a physical place necessarily. It's not a hell with parole or anything like that, but uh-huh. it's It's rather a spiritual state of the soul. So the Catholic Church believes that many people are purified or purged during this time, hence the term purgatory. The idea is that innocent people who suffer from disease, poverty, or persecution, they're already living their purgatory right now. So when they die, they make a beeline straight for heaven. It's like, you've already suffered. Your life sucks. As long as you didn't do anything bad, you're going straight to So heaven. if your life sucked in life, then you don't need to deal with purgatory. Right. Your life is purgatory. Okay. Now, people who live exceptionally good or holy lives, they bypass purgatory and go straight to heaven as well. But almost everybody else, even though we're not necessarily bad enough to go to hell, we're not good enough to go straight to heaven without some kind of introspection or a purification process. Mm. That's what purgatory is. Now, of course, Jesus' death signifies that everybody has the opportunity to go to heaven and, you know, you know, because he died for our sins and all of that sort of thing. Okay. It's just you might not get to go to heaven immediately upon death. OK, so this there's two opposing principles here. So there's God's divine mercy, which is that he'll forgive any sin as long as the sinner is truly repentant and sorry. Mm-hmm. But that's juxtaposed with God's justice, which demands that good be rewarded and evil punished in this life or the next. So this purgatory idea is it just basically evens the score and fulfills justice while accommodating that mercy. It's a half step. Yeah, it's a it's a halfway house between. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, and this is limbo too. Like, it's just uh, limbo is another word no, for purgatory. No, I think that's that's like where unbaptized kids go. Limp- Uh, unbaptized babies go to limbo it's complicated yeah exactly so many locations so many states of soul (laughs) so many states of soul but limbo is something different 
I think. Okay. Now, I can get down with this on like a philosophical level. Like if mm-hmm. somebody lives their whole life very well versus somebody that, you know, lives a life of selfishness and greed or whatever, they can't just like step into the pearly gates well, without like, any kind of, you know, introspection. Yeah. Well, it's like with prison sentences, we don't have one prison sentence that we apply universally to all crimes. Yeah, Like exactly. it makes a lot of sense that you'd have some leveled tiered yeah. element of the afterlife. You know, and of course, like what everybody agrees upon to be like a good life versus a not good life that's changing with society changing and a lot of bullshit with the Mm. with the like dogmas or whatever of catholicism Mm -hmm. but i can understand like if you're like i'm a boozer and i've murdered people that you're not going to necessarily be on the same fast track as the pope yeah as the pope hopefully (laughs) so that's why like catholics have this sacrament of penance that's why they confess their sins and they believe that god forgives them or whatever so purgatory also exists because apparently there are some people that even while they're going through this introspective like you know healing of the soul that they still have pleasant memories of some of their sins so they might be sorry but they're still like God, I loved that weekend in Vegas. (laughs) So Catholicism teaches that the the souls in purgatory want to be there because they know that they have some leftover attachment to sin that they that they don't want to leave. And so once your soul is ready, then you'll move on to heaven. But you can't have fun anymore. That's the idea. (laughs) Is the heaven that these people then go to like them sinning as much as they want? No, you You don't sin if you're what do you mean? Well, like, once you get to heaven, isn't it supposed to be, like, whatever you want or something? Like, what is yeah, the concept you, of heaven but, even? But the idea is that through the purgatory, your soul no longer wants any bad things. Okay. Your soul is pure, which is why when you go to heaven, you're not going to be like, and eh, no, it was all a disguise. That's the assumption. But there's a lot of assumptions there. Believe yeah, in there's heaven, a lot hell, of assumptions. all of those things. I just didn't know because purgatory seemed like it was, I thought that it was like this physical hell-like place, but it's really just a place for your soul to do some searching i guess well i guess that makes sense yeah Uh, i mean with all of these fucking religions there's like there's truth in the sense that like we create our own morality or like mm. we have to decide what is moral and what is not in order for societies to exist and and, like this too is is so symbolic as opposed to being any kind of physical place so when it then to me it gets like really muddled and loses any credibility when you're talking about fundamentalist like hell is a real place where you're gonna Mm. live eternity and burn forever and always you know Mm -hmm. like i don't have a problem with being like maybe you want to look inward and figure out who you are right. before you go on to the next life but i guess but, what i'm really learning is that once you get to heaven i guess everybody's just boring there right exactly aren't like the first three of the ten commandments like thou shalt not have any gods before me like it doesn't actually yeah. have to do with it's like mostly about god's ego murder yeah exactly <laughs> So the house in this movie is a really cool one, Mm -hmm. and it is haunted, which there's lots of houses that are really strange or haunted or, you know, they've got, there's a legends around houses in the real world. It's true. Ghost Ghost Hunters is a show. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I read about this thing called the Winchester Mystery House, Uh and this is in San Jose. San Jose? Like, north in California. Oh, okay, okay. There's like, a lot uh, of San Jose's. Yeah, or world. north of where we are, not where you, the listener, is. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like near San Francisco. Okay, gotcha. This house was built by Sarah Winchester, mm-hmm. who was the widow of gun magnate William Wart Winchester, mm-hmm. who invented the Winchester rifle. Oh, okay. So in 1881, he died of tuberculosis, and Sarah inherited an insane amount of money. Like, she was getting, like, the equivalent of, like, $25,000 a day. Jesus. And some of this story is legend. But what seems happened was that after her husband and infant daughter died, she went to a medium who told her, supposedly while channeling her dead husband, 
that she should leave home in New Haven and travel west, where she must continuously build a home for herself and the spirits of the people who had fallen victim to Winchester rifles. Whoa, interesting. So she moved to San Jose and started building this house, which she continuously had under construction for decades. And the idea was that all of the spirits of people who had been killed by the Winchester rifle were coming back to haunt her and the Winchester family, and she needed to build a house for them. Was she a little cuckoo, do they know? (laughs) I mean... I don't know, but I mean, like, act, like I mean, did she live out her days, or did she go to the sanatorium, or did she? No, oh, no, she lived out her days building this house over and over again, huh. and and so it became a seven-story mansion with more than 160 rooms, 40 bedrooms, two ballrooms, 47 fireplaces, 10,000 panes of glass, 17 chimneys with evidence of two other chimneys, two basements, three elevators. This thing was huge, but she didn't use an architect. She just kept building onto it in a haphazard, like, just do it kind of way. Oh, so it's sort of like the wherever the Maitlands go, where the hallways are all kind of crazy shapes. Exactly, exactly. Like, nothing makes any sense. There's doors and stairs that go nowhere, (laughs) windows overlooking other rooms. Like, there's tons of weird shit in there. And it's still there? Yeah. Cool. You can still tour it. Yeah. And they actually just this year opened up more of the house to be open to the public. On one hand, I can appreciate being a, a part of this family that I guess inadvertently is responsible for deaths or whatever like there's sort of like an activist sensibility there (laughs) right right but you know you're like that guilt then haunting you into just wasting an obscene amount of money on building this house when you could I don't know where else would you put that at the time did they have like I don't know if there was like orgs (laughs) yeah change.org but yeah like it, it gets even weirder where there was only one working toilet for her and all the other bathrooms were decoys to confuse spirits confuse them about what uh, about whether they could take a shit there i don't know oh. i don't know what a fucking weirdo she also had a really weird thing about the number 13 so that number shows up all over the house so like chandeliers were specially made to hold 13 candles and clothes hooks are in multiples of 13 and even the drain covers on the sinks had 13 so holes. it was a lucky number for her and not an unlucky number she was obsessed with it wow. and i guess she slept in a different room each night you got so many fucking rooms. Exactly. But does she live there by herself? Did she have any kids? She or? lived there by herself and had like construction workers on it constantly working until she died in 1923. So this went from the early 80s to the early 20s. <sighs> that is some obsessive compulsive disorder yes. if I've ever heard it. You know what I mean? It's like well, th- these days we have hoarders and stuff. It's like what do you call somebody that's just like constantly they're like can't stop building, can't stop, won't stop. The, yeah. The spirits. The spirits require it. If not, if something been, terrible will happen. I wonder if she'd been dabbling with any like opium or anything like it's that. It's likely. Okay. Because <laughs> I wonder about a lot of this stuff. I'm like you hear all these stories but like it was later learned that there was severe mercury poisoning yeah. happening in all of these places. <laughs> oh wow. But I just find it interesting that she went to like a medium you know, in a time of grief and then was told something that she devoted the rest of her life to exactly what she was told. Uh, That's not far off at all, right? You're like at this insanely emotionally vulnerable state. A lot Mm -hmm. of people do that. Like came to me in a dream. The near death experiences, it's all kind of like wrapped up in it for me. Yeah. I also love the idea of this medium taking an opportunity to really like fuck with her head because she was like related to so many deaths. Like, Like, do you think Oppenheimer's wife felt responsible in any way for like the nuclear bomb deaths or things like that. It's, maybe. You know. Or maybe not responsible, but like yeah. guilt, but guilt by association. And I just find it interesting that a medium would like use that opportunity to make this person feel extreme yeah. guilt. Right. 
don't well, know. Well, do we know that they did that on purpose? I mean, I actually read a bit about seances at the time, and like so many of them were constantly being debunked. Right. That like I gotta think that this person knew that she was a charlatan. Like right. a common thing was, oh, this table is levitating, and nobody could see that the person's knee was was uh, right underneath pushing it, it up. up. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. These like a lot of them knew that they were charlatans and took yeah. people for rides, right. and so I I I don't know that this one was that, but right. Well, I mean, I don't doubt that they were a charlatan, but like specifically, were like <laughs> yeah. I have a real bone to pick with your family's re- involvement in gun deaths. That you know? I don't know. I'm <laughs> like, I'm describing that, but speculative. I'd like to think that that's wow. What, okay. Yeah. Winona Ryder's character, man, Lydia. Lydia Dietz is a fucking goth girl, man. Oh, She's very goth. She's super like, I am alone. Well, she has that Black line, veil. Uh, live people ignore the strange and unusual. I myself am strange and unusual. Yeah, so she had this whole like 80s goth vibe. And so yep. I wanted to learn about the goths. Yeah. The goths of the world. Like I have enough of an exposure to the kind of like the subculture and the, you know, the, the visual aesthetic of it. But I didn't really know if the goths were an actual people. And they were, it turns yeah. out. Well, I know them from like the way they're depicted on South Park. And I know that there was Gothic architecture back in the day. And I know that they're probably related. To yeah. Them. So the Goths were a Germanic people in Europe throughout ancient times and into the Middle Ages. So it's speculated that they originally came from a cold island called Skenza, which is possibly modern day Scandinavia. But when they would have lived there is still unknown. They were able to find some of their written language, which is written on runes. Mm. And but few have been found. They're all very short. There's claims that their religion might have been shaman based, which is having those intermediaries between themselves and the gods. But many times the goths were referred to as barbarians. Didn't know about that, but I also didn't know what the fuck barbarians referred to necessarily. Does that mean that they were like roving and raping and pillaging? They did have like series of migrations where they were moving around. I'm sure there was raping and pillaging involved, but it wasn't like synonymous (laughs) with that. But so yeah, so they like expanded out well into Europe and some parts of what is now, you know, Russia and Asia, but they were pushed out by the Huns. So the Huns pushed the Goths into Roman territory. The Goths were treated very poorly by the Romans, starving. They're like forced to sell their children into slavery for humanity humiliating prices but you know for humiliating prices that's right well you know slavery wasn't that I mean, like, I, far off can't i get point. a little like a more than a hundred for me <laughs> yeah i mean I, I, what am i chopped liver i'm not trying to say like and they were so morally above selling their children <laughs> no, for, know, into just, slavery <laughs> that phrasing is fascinating to me right but eventually you know they the the goths got super pissed they started attacking the romans the roman empire underestimated them and complicated shit happened the goths are most famous for sacking the city of rome in ad 410 oh so yeah they were kind of like marginalized groups that the romans they got you know too big for their britches they mm. didn't realize that uh, they actually packed a punch so uh, what's crazy is that, even though like, rome was falling around that time or had it i don't know mm. i mean we can look that up it was in 476. When was this? So they sacked the city of Rome in 410. So this was like uh, kind of the beginning of the end, it sounds like. That does sound like the beginning right? of the end. So what, what's ironic about it is even though they sacked the city of Rome, the Goths are credited as helping preserve Roman culture because even after the great Rome sack fiasco of AD 410, <laughs> this group of Goths moved to Gaul, which is modern-day France, and Iberia, modern-day Spain area, mm-hmm. and they formed the Visigothic Kingdom. Now, Visigoths are believed to be the origin of Spanish nobility. 
So then as Europe starts entering into the Dark Ages, the kingdom eventually starts incorporating like Roman artistic traditions. They start incorporating Aryan Christianity away from the Gothic paganism that they had been practicing. Mm. And eventually they start converting to Catholic Christianity. So it's just like they are absorbing, you know, as, as any migrating group generally does. So the last Gothic kingdom fell to the Moors in AD 711. But then in the late Middle Ages, this style of architecture arose, which was characterized by these like large imposing cathedrals and castles. So the term gothic was applied to that style as a critique, actually. The the word at the time was a synonym for barbaric. It wasn't necessarily a good thing. Wait, so gothic architecture was seen as barbaric? Mm Mm-hmm. What, like, at that time I wonder why because they're big they're dark they're foreboding they're kind of creepy are. in general you they know are. what I mean then during the 18th and 19th centuries moving on a genre of dark romantic literature called gothic fiction became popular mm. that again got its name from like you know the locations that a lot of these novels took place like you know Dracula's castle uh-huh. or the, you know foreboding areas so that so, was more a step off of the architecture was where yeah. the writing came from yeah but then you but then you imagine like well if this castle is so sinister, there's probably a sinister person inside. I just like this game of telephone that the gothic thing is playing where it's like, this architecture is kind of reminiscent of what we thought of these people. Right. Because, you know, I'm able to read this like bullet points of history. Right, Whereas all of this is extremely gradual. It obviously happens over a really long time. I just love that it's like such a chain Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, all all history is is like this crazy chain of events because like this is when it starts to get more familiar to me, like this gothic fiction so you know the plot usually focuses on characters who are ill-fated internally conflicted and or like innocently victimized by some harassing malicious figure there's the image of the cruel parent the sinister priest you know the helpless heroine this kind of thing but always along with supernatural figures like demons and vampires and ghosts and Mm. monsters and stuff Dracula Mary Shelley's Frankenstein these were huge in the the advent of that kind of gothic literature and then like during the American Revolutionary War American gothic came into play so like think of the headless horseman uh-huh. Sleepy Hollow, all the fucking Edgar Allan Poe's stuff. It's very like American gothic-y. And it's it's all like macabre. It's dark. That's usually what they mean. It's dark. But it makes sense. The castle's a dark. Uh, the, right. The yeah, dark. yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we jump forward to even the 30s with Bela Lugosi's performance in Dracula. You know, that campiness. There's a romance. There's mm-hmm. like this like underlying sexuality to it that I think yeah. that's when this started like really, really jumping up. I'm even visualizing what it looks like when he's grabbing a victim. It's like he right. bites them on the neck. It is very like sensual, you know. It's like, mm. <laughs> so then even by like the 1960s there's the television series like Adam's Family the Munsters and stuff mm-hmm. where they there's like these gothic derived stereotypes it's mm. the campiness really really jumped up there well that's yeah now you're doing it as a sitcom yeah it's pretty totally. awesome you know we'd been enraptured by uh, by these like dark figures for so long we're like what if we turn them on the head yeah, you know, yeah young Frankenstein prime example of satire of turning, yeah satire exactly so then since the late 1970s the, the UK goth scene they really focused on refusing these traditional standards of sexual propriety they like celebrated unusual bizarre or deviant sexual practices like a lot of gender bending there so like Mm. where men might be a little bit more androgynous or they wear skirts and makeup and that kind of shit women are generally sexually feminine right that's the corsets and the fishnet stockings and the you know like very kind of dominatrixy in its vibe Uh you know in my 
lame. Yeah, because I think of it as like black, maybe leather elements. So, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, and and all of it kind of combines. And the goth subculture of the 80s drew inspiration from a variety of sources, including the punk scene, the new wave scene, the glam scene. That makes sense. But then they also drew huge inspirations from the gothic literature that, that we were talking about, like traditional Celtic and Norse mythology, paganism, vampire cults, B horror movies. So it all kind of combines like it's like the the advent of like like new technology new social constructions but also this like old mythology that's why mm-hmm. you have like gaudy jewelry that's why you have like there's so much like so history much, from yeah. from so many different parts exactly. that are present in the current imagination of goth culture right because that's the other thing like not knowing it from the inside this is what i see from the outside right. of what goth culture means well and when i think about it in a modern context i've always associated it with being more of a music or movie mm-hmm. phenomena what was the fucking she's one word she looks like she looks like more t- madonna no <laughs> oh my god you said one word elvira Oh, fucking Elvira. Yeah, yeah. Like she, she was a big, but you know, she was very sexualized. She has her tits out, you know, uh-huh. but it's still like that very like campy vibe or whatever. There's there's something called uber goths, which are, you know, people who are, they're trying to seek a pallor so intense that they like put crazy white makeup on. That's like okay. more of like the vampire goth vibe, I guess. Mm. But well, I know like some people even try to turn themselves into vampires and they like will get blood to drink and they have like surgeries to change their teeth into fangs and stuff. Yeah, interesting. This is a real thing. Okay, yeah. right, right, right. I've seen about where they have them filed down. Yeah, they file them yeah, down yeah. and they do all this weird stuff to literally turn themselves into vampires. You can see all of those connections, but then when I'm reading about this idea of posers or like goth wannabes, like uh-huh. having standards being like, well, anybody that just goes to Hot Topic, you're not you're not a real uh, goth. Or like, right. people that like Marilyn Manson, you're not real goth. And I take issue with that only because it's like, like, real goth hasn't been a thing since the fucking goths were a thing. You know, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up with a ton of mall goths. You right. know, like that's what I'm thinking of is mall goths. What, you know, when I associate it with being a phase that people go through, mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, we're all so affected. You know, when I think of some of the the things that I wore, that I would like write band names on my hand right, just to right. be like, that's right, that's my street cred. So it's like no disrespect to anybody that like really is interested in Celtic mythology or right. any of like the right. or like you know gothic literature, or whatever. But I do take issue with anybody being like, you're a poser. Right. I'm a real goth right. who was born in 1990. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like, come on. It's funny. That's starting with like nerd culture where it's like, I'm real nerdy about this. And then everybody else is like, you're not a real nerd. Right. Right. Yeah. Like it's all it, like life is just one long pissing contest. Yeah. Everybody has to fucking win. <laughs> so Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. In the movie, he spells it differently. And the way he spells it is actually like the way the star Beetlejuice is spelled, which is Beetlegeist. Mm-hmm. So the star Beetlejuice is a red supergiant that's in our galaxy. And it's just a name for it. Right, sure. It, it's such a big star that its diameter would put the surface of the star at the orbit of Jupiter. Okay. At some point, could be tomorrow, could be 100,000 years from now, Beetlejuice is going to go supernova and explode. 100,000 years in astronomical terms is a pretty short time. So in a way, it's like about to do this. Mm -hmm. And when it does, it's going to be like a second smaller sun has appeared in our sky. Oh, wow. Okay. That's how bright it's going to be. And it's going to last for two or three months. Wow. Yeah. It'll light up the night sky and then it'll be bright enough to be clearly visible during the day. And it's just going to be this incredible sight. And we're going to turn every telescope on it and learn everything that we can about it. And who knows? I mean, Beetlejuice is 640 light years away. Mm -hmm. 
maybe it happened 639 years ago and we're about to see it. Right. Now, so how do they track the timing of when it'll explode? So they look at all of these different stars and like the mathematics of how their internal mass works. And if you have enough mass in a star, then you know it's going to go supernova. And we've actually been watching it for long enough with telescopes that we can see it's at this stage of a star's life where it's very likely it's about to explode. Gotcha. Okay, cool. To tell you where in the night sky it is, it's the second brightest star in the constellation Orion. Okay, gotcha. Supernovae in our galaxy are really rare, but on July 4th, 1054, uh-huh. a star in our galaxy went supernova, oh. and it was visible in the sky for about two years. No way. Actually, I just realized July 4th was quite a firework. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You're right. Anyway, so this was recorded by Chinese astronomers during the Song Dynasty, and they called it a guest star. Okay. That appeared in their sky. Guest star. Guest starring. Guest starring. Guest starring Beetlejuice. Let's hope so. So they wrote down this weird thing that happened in 1054, and then it wasn't until the 1800s when people got telescopes that they looked up and they found in that spot in the sky is the Crab Nebula. And this is this beautiful supernova remnant. You may have seen it as like a space image or like a desktop background, Most you know, likely. that kind of a thing. But it's remarkable. And you can see the material that was exploded that once made up the star. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't until 1942 that Jan Oort, who's a really big deal astronomer, he became convinced that the Crab Nebula was the guest star of Chinese lore. And he eventually proved it. Oh, wow. So from That's 1054 awesome. to 1942, right. we didn't like no, connect exactly. these things. Yeah. but. And you're saying 100,000 years is like a blink of a the blink universe's of the, eye. Yes, but, yeah. you know, I'm thinking, I'm like, well, yeah, hopefully we can put all our telescopes on there if we're, if still, we're still around. around. Well, it <laughs> might happen tomorrow. Right. So if it does, then then we'll be good. Right. <laughs> then we'll be good. Then we'll have all our telescopes on there. No, and it, so, so it's just something that we see. It doesn't necessarily affect any, you know, workings on Earth, right? No, it's not like close enough yeah. to create real problems on Earth, but it may either leave a neutron star or a black hole. We don't know enough about like the specifics of its mass to know which it's going to turn into, but there's a possibility that in the future we'll be looking at that same spot and instead of a star, we'll see a black hole. If we do see the supernova, we'll be able to be like, Daylight come and <laughs> you won't go home. But it's it's still night and the daylight's come. <laughs> skeleton key. Yeah. I didn't really know what I mean, I know that a skeleton key like opens all the locks, but I didn't know why. So in the movie they, yeah. they have that. They can't unlock the attic, they eventually like give it to Winona yeah, Ryder. Yeah, yeah, she's whatever. Skeleton keys. Yes. So a skeleton key is also known as a pass key. It's this like type of master key where the serrated edge on the key has been filed down so that it can open numerous warded locks that have a configuration of wards. Wards are just like the slots inside a lock. Like oh, oh, okay. the slots that your serrated key pass through okay okay I, I was like ward what the fuck so i did i was like locks i ended up like looking at a bunch of locks that i didn't know so anyway the term d- refers to the fact that the key has been skeletonized much like a piranha skeletonizes oh, a cow yeah that makes sense because it's just the front it's like the front little key tooth and the back key tooth and everything in the middle is gone i see because yeah. okay because it is like such a simple mechanism yeah but what isn't that a bad idea like isn't it's, it easy to get exactly. one of those it's it's an easy thing to do to like either take a regular key and just sand down the middle the idea is if you have the front and the back teeth i, I say teeth for lack of a better yeah, term it, on it, the key yeah then you're able to like still get in. It kind of right. like defeats the purpose of having a key at all if all you really need <laughs> is that front bit. Right. So yeah, because a lot of times like skeleton keys 
are used for like getting out of handcuffs or this uh. kind of thing. Like they've made keys to do that. So, <laughs> well, it's funny because the, the reason is that the key has literally been skeletonized on the serrated edge. To show how little I understood about it, I imagined them as always being that kind of key that has like those three holes near the handle of it. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah, I was yeah. like, that looks kind of like a skull head. That oh. must be the skeleton oh, of the skeleton key. Oh, like <laughs> that it literally looks it's like, like a skeleton. like skull and crossbone eyes. Yeah, that was how I thought <laughs> of it. so funny. Yeah, see, I had no idea why why they called it that. Why they, yeah. That makes so, so much more sense than what I thought. Yeah, totally. Well, I'm talking specifically about like warded locks and then they were saying like now in other cases there's lever lock skeleton keys and I was like what the fuck is a lever lock key and uh-huh. that's where it's like common in cabinetry and door locks in early colonial America all the way through the 1940s and then there's like pin tumbler locks which we use now and so okay. this basically just tells me I'm like we're gonna find another opportunity for me to just educate myself on locks because I wanted to learn about skeleton keys but then I was like what the fuck is a pin tumbler lock and lever lock there's all sorts of locks, so many locks. and skeleton keys for those locks I'm it's locked wild. inside that's right All of this information. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So at one point, they're eating Chinese food, and someone makes mention of, like, oh, all this MSG, something to that effect, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah. And I've heard a lot about MSG, and I know nothing about it other than it was mostly used in Chinese food for a long time. Like super salt or something? Yeah. Well, first of all, back in the 60s, there was a thing that they called Chinese restaurant syndrome. Oh, no. Mm Mm-hmm. Basically, after eating Chinese food, you'd get like a headache or your skin would flush and you'd sweat a bunch. And people blamed the food additive MSG or monosodium glutamate. But there's no actual scientific evidence that shows a link between MSG and those symptoms. Mm -hmm. And the FDA considers MSG to be a safe ingredient. Most people can eat MSG without having any issues, but there is the possibility of a small percentage of people who have like short term reactions to it. Yeah, I got into this conversation with a buddy of mine a few years ago because I was, you know, I was being like, oh, God, so much MSG in this food. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you know, that's actually not bad for you. And then, (laughs) and so whether or not it is, I think it's also, it's just like a high level of sodium in general is not really good for you. Here's where it's really bad for you because it's not the MSG itself. What it is is a thing that's used to, quote, improve the taste of food. And it allows the use of lower quality and less fresh ingredients without, quote, compromising reported flavor. So the foods are allowed to be lower quality while tasting the same with Uh MSG. So it's not the MSG that's bad, but you're probably eating some shitty Shitty food. food. Right, right. You know, it's used in canned vegetables, soups and processed meats. It's not just Chinese food. Right, sure. But it's similar to glutamate, which can be found naturally in almost all foods. But it's produced by the fermentation of molasses starch or sugar cane oh and that's a process that's similar to making wine or yogurt and so it's basically like fermented sugar Ugh. yeah Which, <laughs> yeah okay you know the fda requires it to be listed on the ingredients and there's obviously a lot of controversy about it and how safe it really is but i think it's probably more the lower quality food than the msg itself lower quality food and yeah i mean there's a lot of fucking sauce. I mean, I go back to the sodium thing. Like, the, yeah, I have yeah. like a sodium attack every time I have, and it's not just Chinese food. It's mm-hmm. anytime many, you're many, over many salting something. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, yeah. yeah, because you're like, why does this taste so fucking good? Because it's overloaded with flavor crystals. Yeah. I think that like MSG is seen as the FDA at the same safety level as salt and sugar. Yeah. Which is generally accepted as safe, right, I think but is what it said. Excess is like. Is the rough thing. Well, the fact that you said fermented sugar, it's like we're we're learning so (laughs) much about how terrible sugar is for you that that makes way more sense. Not to mention the fact that, like, like, 
teriyaki sauce and soy sauce is uh-huh. all all sodium all the time. Yeah, well, it's and a like very teriyaki salty sauce thing. is sugar. <laughs> You know, yeah. And then or, they I balance mean, um, each other yeah. so that you can fit more right. of both in. I know. I'm like, I love my sweet and sour chicken, but yeah, yeah. I, I have a rough go after I eat that. <laughs> At one point in this movie, they try to like wear sheets over themselves yeah. to scare everybody. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is the history of people wearing sheets to yeah, look like ghosts? Totally. And there was actually more to this than I expected. Really? So back in the 1800s in Britain, wooden coffins were really expensive. So most poor people had to go without a box to be put in when they died. So they would just wrap them in a winding sheet, which was a white cloth that bound and covered the corpse head to toe. Mummy stuff. It's not. It's like a mummy, but it's like they wouldn't do the mummification oh, yeah, no, process. Of course, yeah. like so half-assed. <laughs> so whenever somebody wanted to pull a prank, it was easy to just wrap yourself in the fabric to look like somebody who just crawled out of the grave. And then the winding sheets were usually made of linen, so it yeah. continued to the modern day. Makes sense. Now, since most people in Britain believed in ghosts at the time, and actually I read that a slight majority still do, it was a really easy and really effective way to scare the shit out of somebody. Sure. We don't use winding sheets anymore, but the image of a ghost being draped in sheets stuck around as, yeah, as the way to do it. That seems pretty intuitive. It does. You're like, if they put corpses in the sheets, all right. Yeah, this is easy. an easy one-to-one yeah, prank. Fuck, Halloween's tomorrow? <laughs> what do I got? I got these sheets. Yeah, still mm, today, people do that. Very well. Did you have any favorite lines? Yeah, I just love that, like, at one point when ghosts are being proved to these people who are alive, somebody says, the National Enquirer is offering $50,000 for proof of life after death. (laughs) Enquirer, man, just at the forefront. Yeah, and I love the idea that somebody would be like, well, I got to pick up that reward. Yeah. Like, forget, like, how much bigger of a thing that is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That 50 G's is really going to help out instead yeah. of like, you know, changing the course of right. civilization. Yeah. Well, they're also figuring like, well, let's turn this into Jurassic Park. Right. Right. Well, exactly. Ghost Park. Fucking profit motives, man. Yep. Well, they got what was coming to them. They did. Beetlejuice's name was said three times. Obviously, we were really excited about the music, the yeah. cal- Calypso music in here. Now, Jeffrey Jones and Catherine O'Hara were the ones that recommended using the Calypso music for the table scene. You, know, you guys know the song we're talking about. They originally wanted to play a song by the Ink Spots, and this just will tell you how fucking different that scene would have been. If I didn't care more than words can... Wow. So downbeat. So downbeat. It totally makes sense if they were really trying to go for this really, truly macabre sensibility. Just just realizing, like, what were they thinking using that song to try to scare them? Right. (laughs) I much prefer them making it funny. Nobody knew how big of a fucking film this was. Like, look how many people turned down the role of Lydia. Lori Laughlin, who's Rebecca from Full House, you guys. (laughs) Diane Lane, Sarah Jessica Parker, Brooke Shields, Justine Bateman, Molly Ringwald, and Jennifer Connelly all turned down the role of Lydia. Whoa. It came down to Winona Ryder and Alyssa Milano, obviously. Winona Ah. got chosen. But, I mean, and what a fucking career it made for her, right? Like, wasn't Edward Scissorhands very shortly after this? It was a few years after this, and same direction. 
director Tim Burton yeah. and so yeah and like here she is today in Stranger Things I she's know. A, a great actress right but I can imagine if you first got this script you would have been like I'm not sure oh why I guess unless you really know to how Tim Burton's sensibility yeah. is which you would have he'd only done one feature at the time right. which was Pee Wee's Big Adventure yeah like, wh- I know it's like, crazy. how would you know for sure how crazy the script is and how that's going to play out in a way that's actually fun and not weird and terrible? I love it. Well, on that note. <laughs> Thanks for joining, guys. Yeah, next week we're doing The Sixth Day, oh, the boy. Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie from the year 2000. Very silly. And boy, is it from the year 2000. <laughs> it's the most millennial of all. <laughs> you can rate and review us on iTunes, please. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and at ohthatsathing on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joy Amia on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And you guys have a wonderful week. You guys week. are awesome. Stick with us. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.